welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 6, 2018. I am Charlie Sykes, joined by a very special guest, Jonah Goldberg, who has been known to do podcasts of his own. Hey, Jonah, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Charlie, it is absolutely great to be here, although there's a there's a great episode of Cheers where uh, the gang from Cheers is bowling, and Norm decides to go into the bar at the bowling alley, and when he walks in, everyone at the bar there yells, Norm! And he comes back out, and everyone's looking at him and is like, what the hell? Because like, you're, you're, all you do is live at Cheers, and... Norm just says, you know, I, I, I do have a life, you know, I, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm going to the bar at the bowling alley by doing something, you know, for for the weekly standard. But it, it is pretty much like the bar at the bowling alley. And uh, as, as I mentioned before, we, 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 we started, it's kind of for me, it's like a collision of worlds because I'm here in Manhattan at 30 Rock and they put me in Katie Turr's old office to talk with Jonah Goldberg. So it's just like the, all of these worlds coming together. And, and by the way, the, the office is picked absolutely clean. So I have, I have nothing to dish. I have no information whatsoever, no inside stories at all, except that apparently Katie Turr now has a new office, which I am presuming is, is bigger. Um, well, when so they find out that you're talking to me, I'm sure the guys in hazmat suits will come in and still wipe everything down one more time. Well, sure but I- no, you, well, you're, you're, you're not benefiting from that strange new respect thing. You, you still have I, I that am, a little bit, right? I am a little bit. I mean, I'm sort of the the house goy at NPR these days. You know, that's that's nice. But um, so yeah, no, maybe maybe they won't. You know, who knows? Well, well, I'm, I'm going to start off by talking um about this book, and here's a spoiler alert. Uh, the book, of course, is the Suicide of the West. Uh, this book is a serious book. It's an important book, and and I would argue that it is an essential book to try to figure out what is actually happening to American democracy. And um, I, I got to tell you, Jonah, I, I'm, I am uh, envious that you were able to be able to sift through all of the stuff, the incoming chaff of your world, to be able to shut that out at least temporarily to try to figure out uh, what the hell happened, how deep is this pathology, and it, it is an extraordinary work. So let me start off by asking this, uh, first of all, um, because I have actually read the book. Well, what percentage of the people who interview you think have actually read your book? It's always an interesting question. Uh, I, I, you know, this time around, I would put it maybe as high as 14%. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's yeah. So, so what is the most annoying question you've gotten so far? Uh, you know, that's a, that is a good question. Um, uh, it's, 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 it, well, I, so one, I did the, this thing at KQED in San Francisco and the, the host was Michael Krasny. He was great. I had no problem with mm-hmm. any of his questions. I mean, I disagreed with some of it, but that's fine. Um, but the amazing thing was, you know, here I am talking about, you know, the you know, human nature and how we split up, how we, how, what is, what is man's natural environment for the last 250,000 years since we split off from the Neanderthals and all the stuff about Locke and Rousseau and romanticism and the obsession of the callers was all about Citizens United. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and they just oh, kept coming back to it. <laughs> no, this is this is interesting. You mentioned this because um, I'm, I'm actually writing something else about you know stories that uh, that the left tells themselves. You know how they cope with this, and it's 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 like the warm blanket that they wrap around themselves. And I literally have never been at an event dominated by progressives where the at least the first first or second call, uh, question is about citizens united and and, yeah. and then of course there's going to be a question about gerrymandering it's just it's it's like their 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 fixed idea yeah but, and, and and it's and it's it's so immune to facts or to you know uh, pushback of any kind I mean, it's sort of like the Koch brothers i mean it's so funny i mean it's a standard riff of mine where you know you'll hear liberals talk about the kind of conservatives that they wished Conservatives be if only you guys, you know, got rid of the culture war stuff and we're okay with gays and you know if only you guys gave up on the drug war and if only you know and they run through all of these things and I say so you mean like the Koch brothers and they're like no not them you know but but they 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 get an idea of what uh, this sort of demonology is and they can't let go of the facade rather than the and then actually listen to what the reality is whether it's Citizens United or Koch brothers or a whole bunch of things. Well, I mean, it, there, there's sort of the that that parallel on, on the right. It's the globalists or the, or the Jews yeah. or whatever, and they they have their own conspiracy theories. Now, right near the end of the book, uh, you mentioned that this book, that the original manuscript, 
was twice the size of this book, which is not a short book. And then you mentioned something that Charles Murray uh, told you, that if you didn't change your mind once or twice while writing this book, you weren't doing it right. So what what did you change your mind about as you wrote about the suicide of the West? By the way, the subtitle is How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. So what did you change your mind about? Yeah, well, a, a bunch of things. Um, first one about the desirability of writing intellectual history books. Um, um, I, I really don't want to do it again. But, um, uh, you know, first of all, I've really kind of changed my mind about, you know, my, my second book, which I think was a much better book than its reception would indicate. Um, the, the book was basically uh, a terrible title around a book defending ideology. Mm-hmm. And I still believe in ideology. I think ideology is really important. But um, I, I kind of changed my views about how ideology works, how it manifests itself. Um, there is a really strong tendency. I definitely have it. And I've done a lot of it, and I'm second-guessing some of it, of doing this sort of intellectual connect-the-dots thing. Mm-hmm. You get someone who said something 300 years ago, and then 100 years later, somebody else says something really similar. Aha! That shows the influence of the person 100 years before. Right? We do this with Rousseau. We do this with Aristotle on Plato. We trace these ideas back as if there was always this clear connective tissue over time. There's this great line from John Maynard Keynes where he says, you know, I, I'm going to completely butcher it, but the gist of it is, rarely are there, is there, there a, a, a scribblings from some writer or an utterance from a politician that cannot be traced back to the findings of a dead economist 200 years prior, <laughs> something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And intellectuals in particular, and journalists in particular, this idea is very seductive, this idea that, what we write down, what we say, it echoes through eternity and, and, and it'll be part of our posterity. And I've come to the conclusion that while there is an important role for ideology and dogma and all of these things, and particularly when it comes to Western civilization, at the same time, I think so many forms, basically all forms of, almost all forms, I shouldn't say all, almost all forms of sort of uh, political ideology, other than broadly speaking, Western democratic capitalism, are really are really basically just human nature reasserting themselves in new times. Mm-hmm. They're all different kinds of tribalism, and they take on a different face and a different age. Sometimes they look right wing, sometimes they look left wing. Sometimes it depends on what we mean by right wing and left wing. But nationalism, socialism, communism, uh, fascism, uh, these are all different forms of tribalism that say. We the, the 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 largest political entity should behave like a family or a tribe, and that uh, we should remove all artificial distinctions. We should remove all sort of notions of islands of separateness uh, in either for institutions or for individuals, and all the oars should pull in the same direction. And so, like fascism was was tribalism for one state. Mm-hmm. Communism is tribalism for one class. Nazism was tribalism for one race. They're all basically the same arguments in just taking sort of different form in different ages. And the one thing that stands athwart all of them is this thing I call the miracle of liberal democratic capitalism that's, you know, infused with all these sort of Lockean classical liberal ideas. And that, that, that's the main theme. Let me, I'm, I want to come back to that because as you're writing this book, um, you're writing the book during the rise of, of Trumpism. And you talk about that uh, near the end of the book. Um, one of the things that, that, that struck me was that you, that, well, let me just get your, get your sense about, um, the, in the beginning, you probably thought uh, that will never happen here. Authoritarianism. Right. Um, when you you write that uh, when you're writing liberal fascism, you revise that a little bit because you know as you studied Woodrow Wilson's administration, it won't happen for very long here. But what's happening now, at least I'm picking up, has has somewhat darkened your your perspective. Yeah. On that. I, so I should have picked up the cue because that's actually one of the things I wrote about in the book that changed my mind um, about. I used to have a hard and fast view that in part because of how, what we call fascism, because there's a debate about what was fascist and what wasn't in the past. But, you know, even in the two countries that basically everybody can agree are fascist, except for some scholars of fascism, which were Italy and Nazi Germany. There's some people who think that Nazi Germany wasn't technically fascist either, but that's a really fine tooth kind of argument. Um, 
it's worth pointing out that, you know, in fascist Italy, Mussolini did terrible things, and he certainly did terrible things abroad and killed lots of people invading, you know, North Africa and all that kind of stuff. But the total number of, you know, Italians that he killed, um, I think the debate was somewhere between, you know, five and 25 or something <laughs> like that. You know, he did other things, you know, he, he tortured people, he, you know, he, he was a rapist, he was a bad person. But when you measure that up about what sort of strongmen types have done throughout the ages compared to the industrialized slaughter of Nazi Germany, there's a real difference. And it's because the difference in fascist Italy has to do with the nature of the Italian people. Biological racism is not going to worse work on a country that was occupied by the Moors that has all of these different ethnicities in it. Um, it's also, well, there was a history of some anti-Semitism in Italy. It was theological. It wasn't biological. And in Germany, the history of anti-Semitism is much stronger, much different. And so part of my argument when working on liberal fascism was that fascism, like nationalism, kind of, it's sort of like it, it, turns, it turns the national character into a caricature and brings out the worst things in them. And so Italy got worse, but it wasn't nearly as bad as Nazi Germany, which, because fascism in Nazi Germany really brought out the worst trends in the German character. And I always believe that there's something about the American character going back to what American exceptionalism was really understood to be before uh, ignorant people on the right and the left completely buttered the um, the intellectual definition of what American exceptionalism was about. Um, there was something just different about the American character that I thought would make tyranny, authoritarianism, just not work here. And um, I still largely believe that. I still think it's very unlikely to have authoritarianism here. But I think it's easier to see how it could happen now. And I, and I, I, in part because of working on this book, I'm also much more convinced about the fragility of liberal democratic capitalism. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about, because and I'm not trying to butter you up here, but, but your book, the, the overall thesis does explain that fragility. Because, you know, the point that you make here is that, uh, it, and again, I urge people to read, read the book, the thing that the life we're living now, the, the prosperity, the freedom, um, all of those things are not necessarily natural to the human condition, that in the right. great scope of, of human history, this this miracle of liberal democratic capitalism, um, you know, it was really only 300 years old in the entire hundreds of thousands of years of, of humanity, and that many things like um, hierarchical states, uh, tribalism, uh, tyranny, monarchy, is in, in many ways more natural to the human condition. So when you take that that perspective, you realize that a lot of the things that we had taken for granted, these democratic norms, these respects for this respect for one another, are actually of relatively recent vintage and therefore much thinner and 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 much more fragile and vulnerable than we may have taken for granted before, you know, five minutes ago. No, that that's that's the big overarching point of the book is that um uh, capitalism, I mean, capitalism, democracy, individual rights, natural rights, human rights, however you want to put it, um, uh, free markets, property rights, all of these things are to one extent or another completely unnatural. If they were natural, if this system that we have were natural, you'd think it would have appeared and lasted a little bit longer or a little bit earlier in the evolutionary record, right? So they were not inevitable. There's They're no right side of history. There's no arc of history. There's no right. foreordained exceptionalism that, that we can rely upon. We stumbled into this by accident. And, and by accident, I don't mean, you know, people get have a real problem with this by accident thing. But what I mean by that is just, you know, I mean, take the most common explanation about where capitalism comes from, or one of the ones, right, which is the Max Weber idea that... Um, the Protestant work ethic, which teaches, you know, delayed gratification, hard work, honest dealings, thrift, that that gave us capitalism. Now, I think there's a lot of merit to the argument. Um, I don't think it's over in the end all, you know, truly dispositive, but or, or, you know, persuasive in every regard. But it's a certainly a plausible theory. But even if you take it at face value, you know, no one said that if you do all of these things, you'll get rich. They said if you do all these things, there's a better chance that maybe you'll be going to heaven. And it turned out that if you organized your life and behaved in a way that was pleasing to God, it turns out that that was actually a good business practice too, and you got more wealthy. So, you know, capitalism isn't the prosperity gospel. 
You know, that's Donald Trump's, you know, church. Mm-hmm. It is, it, you know, the, the Weber thesis in and of itself suggests that this was this accidental byproduct of a change in the human heart, in our human habits, that is not natural to us. You know, part of a big part of Puritanism is denying human nature. And, you know, so when people ask, why is there poverty? I think it's this idiotic question because we know why there's poverty. Poverty is the factory preset of the human condition. As individuals and as a species, we are all born naked, penniless, and ignorant. The only interesting question is, why is there wealth? And if you look at the vast sweep of human history over the last 250,000 years, there's only one freaking answer. And it's, it's, this, it's capitalism. It's the market. It's, and it's not just like capitalism in the, the sort of Gordon Gecko sense. It's capitalism in the uh, sort of the, libo, the liberal Lockean sense of the sovereignty of the individual, property rights, the idea that the fruits of your labor belong to you, that your rights come from God, not from government. Those are the things that accidentally unleashed this massive wave of prosperity that for the first and only time in human history made the average human being richer. For 250,000 years, every, the average human being everywhere in the world lived on $3 a day until once and only once in all in human history did that change, starting in England, and it was an accident. And since it's an accident, we should treat it with a little more reverence, a little more frickin' gratitude, you know, um, and a little more sort of appreciation for the possibility that we could revert to the mean of human nature and go back into a zero-sum world of tribalism. And, and again, this is the most important thing in this, this you're, you talk about the, the ignorance and the ingratitude that we have, uh, or perhaps the boredom that we're experiencing from liberal democratic capitalism. And you do point out the the almost the, the gravitational pull of this tribalism, that, that again, because all of these these new values are relatively thin on the ground, that we can very easily revert. I have one one question that that didn't nag me uh, though, uh-huh. and I'm sure you've been asked this many many times. The the provocative first sentence of your book, and by the way, I really like the first sentence and the last sentence of the book. But the first <laughs> sentence of the book is there is no God in this book. Period. Paragraph. So obviously, and and yet. You've mentioned God and faith in God and the role of, of, of God or ideas about God in the development of liberal uh, capitalism, liberal democratic capitalism, just several times in the last few minutes. So, in fact, even though you start off kind of leading with your chin there, this is not about God, in the book, there certainly is a role for for that, 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 that it was our society that stumbled upon this as opposed to those that did not have that conception of God. Yeah, no, and this is, you know, this is, this sentence has thrown off a lot of reviewers, uh, <laughs> including friendly ones and unfriendly ones alike. And the the point I, I'm trying to make there is not, first of all, I'm not an atheist. That's not my argument. Right. What I'm saying is, is that um, that in logic, appeals to authority are only the only times they're not a logical fallacy is when everybody agrees on the authority. If if say you you and I are brothers, we can say to each other, we can't do this because dad says so or because mom says so. But you can't say that to the kid across the street, right? You can't say that to a stranger because they don't recognize the authority of your father. And one of the things I am trying to do in this book, which I, I'm 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 kind of I'm more shocked how much it it baffles a lot of a lot of liberals who have written some dumb things about it. But um, what I'm trying to do is actually model the behavior that I think conservatives have lost sight of, which is to get back to the art, to the task of persuading people. And so what I'm doing in the beginning of the book, this is, this is the enlightenment. What you're describing is the, uh, the values um, of the enlightenment. Yeah. Or, or of, of the right, right parts of the enlightenment. We can talk about the enlightenment yeah, in a second, right. but yeah. Um, the idea that persuasion matters, that the idea that you can use facts and logic and reason to convince somebody that their position is wrong or that their interests are better served by joining your coalition. That's what politics is supposed to be about, going back to Aristotle. And and so when I say there's no God in this book, what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to appeal to liberals, progressives, secular, moderns, whatever you want to call them, and say that um, I'm not going to say that you have to like liberal democratic capitalism because God gave it to us and God says it's wonderful. I'm going to work on their terms, on their own you know, on, on, on their evidence, which is like supposed to be all about science and the the, the sovereignty of of evolution as an explanation for everything, and so that's what I do. I ter- I use their materialist terms to say, hey, look, even by your own standards, if you care about fighting poverty, if you care about fighting bigotry, right? If you care about 
um, individual liberty, whether it's the left wing version or the right wing version. Um, this is the game. The, you yeah. know, capitalism mm -hmm. solves all of, or the miracle that I call it solves all of these things except for one of them, which is income inequality. Because what capitalism does is it tends to make everybody richer, but some people at a faster rate than other people. And that drives us nuts for some reason. And you, you also identify the, the the other weakness, which is that the liberal democratic capitalism does not really provide you with meaning. Right. And and they, it provides you freedom to discover that meaning, which is and again, I won't say that there's a flaw, but but it is one of the, the reasons that you describe that people become bored or disillusioned or angry with liberal democratic capital and why they're so attracted to the the the, the, the tribal uh, the tribal appeals to join us and we will provide you the meaning that all of this prosperity and freedom doesn't provide you. That's right. So when I said at the beginning about how. I've changed my view about ideology, capital, socialism, fascism, Nazism, all that kind of stuff. All of those are what the historian Ernest Gellner called re-enchantment creeds. Uh, Max Weber had said that one of the things that defines the modern period is the disenchantment of the world. And what he meant by that was sort of that the sort of secular enlightenment-based societies bleed the public square and daily life of enchantment, of, of, mm -hmm. of, of systems of feeling like you're uh, having social solidarity with each other, with the nation or with the church or whatever, um, feelings that you're part of something larger than yourself have been sort of purged from the public, from public life and a lot of parts of private life. And so we, we evolved to be a cooperative species inside of a tribe or a, a band or whatever you want to call or a troop. And the cooperation was total. I mean, it's funny, the, 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 the most famous pithy definition of fascism from Benito Mussolini was Everything inside the state, nothing outside the state. Mm -hmm. That's tribalism, right? That, that is the natural environment in which we grew up in and evolved in for hundreds of thousands of years, really millions of years, if you look at our ancestors. And it was an adaptive solution um, uh, for on evolutionary grounds um, so that the cooperative tribe, the cooperative band, um, was going to be more likely to pass on it's genes because they were all going to fight together. They were going to take care of each other. So we kind of grew up in socialism. And this is a very Hayekian point. Our, and our brains are still wired to want, not necessarily Marxist socialism, but the socialism of the tribe. We're all in it together. We're all part of a team. And it pings our, our, our sort of psychological and ideological sweet tooth, these calls to be part of a tribe or a team. That's why the moral equivalent of war is the, the operating motif of American progressivism for the last 110 years, um, where it's constantly how we got to you know drop our individual pursuits and rally around the state and all work together as one. Um, and all of these different reenchantment creeds or ideologies, um, I, I believe, are fundamentally, rea fundamentally reactionary because what they're literally trying to do is go back to a past before capitalism but the reason why they appeal to us is because capitalism or liberal democratic capitalism really cannot ping that sweet tooth. It's, and the reason why I can't ping the sweet tooth is it's too cooperative. Capitalism is the greatest system ever conceived of for the peaceful and communal cooperation of different people. The only problem with it is it doesn't feel like it. And so you get things like, you know, the famous essay by Leonard Reed, where Leonard Reed uh, wrote an essay called I Pencil. Mm -hmm. And he points out that nobody in the world knows how to make a pencil. Um, and he says, and it's written, you know, from the perspective of the pencil, I am a number two pencil, blah, 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 blah. And the pencil points out that, you know, my wood comes from Canada, my paint comes from Delaware, my rubber comes from Indonesia, my zinc comes from wherever. And... No one knows how to put a pencil. Pencil manufacturers only know how to put together the last two bits. Meanwhile, it's thousands or millions of people speaking different languages, worshiping different gods, being different in different countries, working cooperatively to produce the pencil. I think I think you make th this point that capitalism is has been the ultimate dissolver of the tribes, making people uh, trust. And reach out to the stranger, to the other, to see them as customers, and and I, I think this is one of the valuable things about your book. I, I was just getting to the point where thinking we know all of the endless talk about our, our political tribalism and you know the the moment that we're living in, and it, uh, that it almost become a cliche. And you really you know 
brought back the context that you just described, but also that we shouldn't be surprised about the return of tribalism in politics because that really is the default setting, right? I mean, that is the default setting that we have. I want to go back to, and not not to belabor the point about about God, but I I do think that the key word um, in in the book, at least the, that I came away with, um, is not the word suicide, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's the word miracle. How you in fact have described and document this miracle. And I'm, and I don't, but but pointing out that it is a miracle of ideas. It is a miracle of culture. It's a miracle of 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 human decision, and that it and because it's not a divinely ordained miracle, we can squander this thing. We can screw this up. In, right. in fact, your you know your point, which is really it kind of hits you, is that decline is a choice, and um, that we can actually choose. I wasn't going to get to this right away, but I think the the last sentence of your book. I told you I liked your your first sentence and and your last sentence. The last sentence, well, actually, uh, at, the, at the appendix, see, I got a page. I got a page through this. I thought <laughs> I was going to be able to go with this. You remember what the last page was, right? No, the the last the last uh, uh, last sentence of the book is decline is a choice. Principles like God's die when no one believes in them anymore. So that we've learned all of these amazing things. We've created this vast civilization. And yet, if we are not grateful, if we don't understand those principles, it can die. There's right. right. God, God, no. God, God is not going to save us from this. Right. And, and I admit it because I'm kind of bleary eyed. I skipped over part of your earlier question about God. The other reason why I bring up, why I say there's no God in the book, is for the same reason I say there are no cold, impersonal forces that. The Marxists rely on. There's no right side of history. There's there, the the we have all of the agency in whether or not we want to preserve our civilization or not. It's in our hands. As Reagan used to say, we're never more than one generation away from tyranny because we do not inherit liberty in our blood. We have to be taught it and we have to defend it. And so when I what I'm basically saying is we can't just sort of let you know let Jesus take the wheel. Right. Uh, right. We we can't do that with our civilization. We actually have to fight for it. And defend it. And if we don't, you know, this, this sort of gets to this, this concept I talk about a lot in the book is when we talk about corruption these days, we basically think of, you know, what Rod Blagojevich does or yeah. Michael Cohen, right? And those are, of course, kinds of corruption. But historically and religiously, um, corruption means rot, decay, entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. It's all caught up in the biblical notion of from ashes to ashes and dust to dust, and this idea of a sort of circle of life. And so, you know, the the best analogy is to Lord of the Flies. You have these little kids who are the pinnacle of Western civilization. You drop them on an island without adult supervision to have them, you know, maintain the rules. And human nature immediately rushes back in and takes over. And in five minutes, they've got war paint and spears, and they're worshiping a demon pig head. You know, that's what humanity is. That's one of the reasons I love, like, The Walking Dead, or at least up, up until the last couple of seasons. <laughs> because all of these apocalyptic, you know, movies and TV shows, what they all remind us, at least in the back of our heads, how, how thin the veneer of civilization is. And all you need is some sort of you know, shock to the system or calamity. And all of a sudden we're back in Mad Max with, with, with gangs of, of competing tribes fighting over resources because that's our natural environment. And when we give in to human nature, what we're doing is we're giving in to our instincts because that's all human nature is. And our instincts look around at modern democratic capitalism and they say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that's why, you know, when you say God comes in at the end, you know, the, the reason why, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why I think we're in the bad place that we are is that we've lost, as a, as a, as a unifying conception of the world, the idea of God-fearing. Um, that nobody else may be watching, but God's watching us. That's right. You know, and that's one of the he best— He knows what you're doing in there. Yeah, one of the best definitions of good character is what you do when nobody else is watching. And, and, but I think the reason why that's so for a lot of people was that they always thought that God was watching. Adam Smith talks about the impartial observer, which is sort of the same idea. We have a sense of how we want to be perceived by others um, or, and certainly by God. Well, if you no longer think in those terms, there are no—it's much harder to have internal restraints on your impulses. 
and and, and, th- and this is something that again is I think one of the, the the great conservative insights is that liberal democratic capitalism is a miracle, but as you point out, it also then relies on a vibrant civilization and civil you know civil society with all of those values um, and, and and a culture that supports it. Uh, you you also I want to just get to this the how fragile civilization is, but also. That civilization also re- relies on citizens and citizenship, and you you devote a good deal of time talking about the erosion of that, including this really remarkable piece, which I, I have to look up, uh, the John Courtney Murray lecture from 1961. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, the... Ret- he was He was talking about the return to tribalism in 1961, and he said... And uh, you described it as a prophetic warning. I suggest the real enemy within the gates of the city is not the communist, but the idiot. And he was obviously, he didn't mean idiot as, you know, a, you know mentally deficient, but somebody who um, does not possess the public philosophy, the man who is not master of the knowledge and the skills that underline the life of the civilized city. The idiot to the Greek was just one stage removed from the barbarian. He is the man who is ignorant of the meaning of the word civility. And, you know, this is one of our problems that, you know, how, how do you continue this, uh, this democratic experiment if, in fact, we have become a society of idiots? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was in the Weekly Standard, you know, John Podoritz wrote quite well about how of the prophetic nature of the movie Idiocracy. <laughs> um, De- depressingly. And, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I was just talking about this on a radio show recently, but um, uh no, I I generally don't like those man on the street, uh, like jaywalking Jimmy Kimmel things where they ask people, uh, you know, easy questions to prove how dumb they are because you don't know how many people. I right. think you talked about this on this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Jimmy Kimmel, um, the other a couple of weeks ago, went around and just asked people to name a book. Oh gosh, this a book they'd read? It was like, no, no, I don't think it was it. Oh, I think no, it was right. just name a, book. a book. Yeah, just a name book. a book. Yeah, and like. Right. And like one person asked, well, does the Bible count? They're like, yeah, sure. Okay. I was like, okay. Well, the Bible, because I was the only one they could think of. But like most of them couldn't name a book. They would name some movies, whatever. And, and, um, I don't, you know, my guess is that's a very tiny fraction of the actual, you know, public. Mm-hmm. But if you then you just look at, you know, these, this public polling about what people know about basic civics in this country, yeah. um, we do have, as Ben Sass likes to say, you know, we have a civics crisis in this country. And um, if you read the Bible, you know, Old Testament or New, one of the things that, you know, particularly, I, I, I get, I, I feel like particularly the Old Testament, but then again, I, that's that's mine. Um, <clears throat> there is this, you know, this emphasis on memory, and 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 memory is, you know, and remembering, and it's not about like cognitive recall. It is. A, it's a verb. It's an activity. It's something that you do, um, you know, to honor the Sabbath, honor your mother and father. If you read the Passover Haggadah, it talks about the sense of memory and gratitude for being liberated from bondage in Egypt thousands of years ago. And in this country, we do not teach people to be grateful. Yeah. for what we have. And when you're grateful for something, you want to preserve it and protect it, and you put in the effort for it. When the, the opposite of gratitude is entitlement and resentment, and we teach that now. We teach kids to be have a sense of entitlement. We teach kids to have a sense of resentment against the society that they're born into. And that, to me, is the, is the fundamental suicidal choice. Because if you don't teach people to be grateful for what they have and and you, know, you want them to be to want to improve things. That's fine, but in, wanting to improve things is a form of gratitude too, because you're taking, you're saying, you know, this thing I have is wonderful. I want to make it even better. It's worth, it's worth preserving and improving. Yeah, and we're losing sight of that in so many ways. And when you do that, and when you tell people that they're they're the highest form of real authority, of moral authority, of authenticity, isn't some external creed or religion or faith or set of principles. But your own gut, your own your feelings, own feelings, right? That is a that is a suicidal choice of turning away from this unbelievable thing. The first time that we've ever had prosperity for normal people in all of human history. I think that uh, most people are familiar with uh, your 
your opinions about Donald Trump. I think they're probably familiar about mine as well. I think we, we share them. You have a very interesting um, analysis right near the end of the book where you say that Trumpism is not an alternative to progressivism, but really a, just another version of it. What do you mean by that? I thought that was very interesting. That, yeah. that, that the Trumpism is, is 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 not the opposite of the 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 progressive left. It's just it's just it's its own variation on the right. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I I know you've cause I, I I am an avid listener of this podcast. Yeah. I know you've talked about this from time to time about you know the flight ninety three election stuff and 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 Michael Anton's you know arguments mm-hmm. there. Um, the more telling insight into sort of that mindset was in an, a in exchange when he was still writing anonymously, I had with him and before he and they at the old Journal of American Greatness took down the entire site and deleted everything they wrote. Uh, Anton argued that, you know, my idea of, you know, this is Jonah Goldberg's idea of a, a colorblind meritocratic society where we judge people. I'm sorry about that. We judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Um, that's gone. He says. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm gonna hang up this phone. Sorry. Well, you know, I mean, that, that that that's that's really one of the fault lines, though, right? I mean, that this is this is the this is the the right re- rejecting that whole you know liberal democratic constitutional tradition that, that that you and I thought we were part of, right? Right. And so, but my point is, is that so he um, he says this, and so we need our own identity politics. Well, you know, if this is one of the reasons why, you know, and it bothers a lot of people that I say it, but that why, why fascism or Nazism wasn't what people think it was. You know, Nazism is this ideology of racial essentialism that says some people are better than other people and that we all and that the good people and the right people all um, need to have an interventionist state where the government takes care of everybody and levels out in, income inequality. But at some reason, that's considered right wing because it was for white people right. and in Nazi Germany. Well, you know, so much of what Donald Trump and I'm not comparing Donald Trump to, right. to Hitler. It's not Nazism. But, um, you know, he, Donald Trump comes along and he says, I alone can fix it. He breaks with 50 years of conservative criticism of Washington by saying not by saying that Washington is too big and too powerful, but by saying that Washington is too weak and too dumb and that he can come in and he you know, I alone can fix it. I can run everything. I can do I can deliver everything that you want from government that I can make the government the federal government of Washington the solution to your problems. That is not a particularly conservative argument. And if you watch now, you know, it's 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 one thing to uh, say that, you know, uh, you know, to cut regulations or to get rid of sort of green energy boondoggles and all that kind of stuff which I think both of us would agree with. Sure. When it, but it now it's very clear that you know that Trumpnomics is is just another version of picking winners and losers. Yeah, you know, command they're, they're, and control. Yeah. They're considering um, requiring that ener- uh, that electricity company electricity utilities buy from uh, non market feasible coal um, power plants just as a sop to their people. It's extraordinary. All the stuff with with protectionism, it is it is just it's it's picking winners and losers. It's just picking different winners and losers. And yeah, Barack Obama was far more eloquent. Barack Obama, um, you know, had the the creases in his trousers, and you know, and when he looked off into the distance, it didn't look like Mussolini's chin. It looked like he was <laughs> looking to the future, where finally America will realize how much we how lucky we are to have Barack Obama. But the, the sort of underlying ethos of both of them is this idea that our problems can be solved by, if not a man on a white horse, then a strong man or a some sort of Nietzschean Superman in Washington. And that's, you know, populism always devolves into statism because the whole essence of populism is to make demands of the government to take care of my people, not those other people. Well, and you also point out though the the way that our politics has become the, the the line between politics and entertainment has been completely eroded. That we now watch our politics the way we watch television. We 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 want the drama. Uh, we want the hero to win, and maybe that contributes to it. Hey, in the time we have, I have to ask you this because I, I know that I I think you share um you know my reaction to the last several years that the worst thing that's that's happened I think to the conservative movement is not Donald Trump. 
it's watching our former friends and allies um, roll over. And I have uh, I have freely borrowed your your analogy or your met- metaphor of the that it's like inv- watching invasion of the body snatchers. Like oh, oh my god, oh no, they got they got Bill Bennett. Oh, oh no, Victor Davis Hanson. Like oh my god, it's it's Hugh Hewitt. They've gotten him on all of this. Uh, and 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 yet you haven't you haven't changed your position and but even though you have become I mean I get a lot of crap but you you are the you are the guy the the Trumpists seem to fixate on is do you think that's an overstatement uh, it, it, I don't know I, don't, <laughs> I, I I think we could probably like you know Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw and Jaws sit around the the kitchen table of the boat and compare sharks shark scars um but and bill crystal could be on that party too yeah that's right and you know and look um but yeah there i i definitely feel the animosity from a lot of people and i don't enjoy it you know this is not like you know fighting with left wingers where you know you can kind of you you it's easier to see your opponents as people that you don't mind the fact that they hate you this is coming from within the house they're in the yeah house. and i don't enjoy this it has been a very stressful time for me and um you know and one of them honestly and i've said this a bunch of times but you know professionally one of the things that i've found you know truly just dismaying is the number of people i mean it's it's petered out now but over the last couple of years the number of people I've heard from them. So, oh, I've been a longtime fan of yours. I always, I love your books. I love you. This, blah, blah, blah. You've been great. Blah, blah. But I'm just so disappointed in you now. Oh, and, gosh, yeah. and the, and the gist of it is, is that, um, they're mad at me for not living down to their expectations. Right. Cause they thought that, okay, I understand you didn't like them in the primaries. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. But you know, at the end of the day, they just assumed that I was going to be a serviceable hack and get on board. And, um, I'm perfectly happy to celebrate some of the things that Trump has done. I'm perfectly happy to admit that I've been wrong about some of the worst case scenarios that I thought were possible, but, um, and I, I, I listened to the Ben Shapiro podcast Mm -hmm. that you did, you know, and he says he's, you know, he likes sometimes Trump, not never Trump or whatever. I don't like that formulation because the problem is they're all pinging off of the term never Trump. And the way, the way, uh, some of our. Um, adversaries or critics on the right use never Trump is it's sort of like an old, it's sort of like the way um, uh, sort of McCarthyites used to use red baiting, <laughs> which, which is to say that you can dismiss someone's argument. If I say two plus two is four, it was, well, you're a never Trumper. You would say that, right? It is, it is assuming bad faith is built into it. And, and the idea is, is that, um, if you're a never Trumper, you can never give him credit. Nothing Trump does will ever be good for you. Yada, yada, yada. And it's the same problem with the people I call always Trumpers who it doesn't matter what he does. He gets the benefit of the doubt. He's playing four dimensional chess. He's brilliant. You don't understand, or you need to get over the fact this is just the way he is. And everyone needs to bend to his behavior. Um, and so I prefer Trump skeptic because I'm a Trump skeptic because I think he's a man of bad character. I, and I and I've yet to meet a, a sane, reasonable person person come up with a definition of good character that Donald Trump can clear. Um, and I believe that conservatism, when you boil it down, you strip it of sort of prudential questions and metaphysical ones, simply boils down to the idea that ideas matter and that character matters. And so, yeah, I mean, I like I mean, like Charles Kessler is a, a friend. To. Yeah. yeah, Charles Kessler is a friend of mine. I have a lot of admiration for Charles Kessler. If you told me five years ago he was going to be writing essays about how bad men can be good leaders, I'd be a little shocked. And um, and I don't dispute. I don't. I don't um, disagree that bad men can have beneficial, uh, you know, aspects to their rule. But that is not an argument for saying that we should never point out that he's a bad person. Well, and, you know, and and this is why this is why you know I, I've said this before. You know, Sean Hannity, guys like Sean Hannity, don't bother me that much because, frankly, I think that he's as dumb as a box of rocks. It, it is the people who you expect more of. It is the Charles Kesslers. It is the I don't want to you know pick fights with individuals, but it, it is the people who are using their intellect in order to rationalize that in some ways, I I I think are doing the most damage. 
You know, they're 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 providing this intellectual gloss. You know, and that I, you know, you're not and you're not playing the victim card. And I don't want to play the victim card. But all the people who say, you know, that that you're not on board the Trump train because you're cashing in in some way. I you know, I agree with you. The 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 soul crushing, dismaying, um, you know, experience of of watching the movement and the ideas, you know, be be dismantled, uh, you know, has been. I mean, you know, really one of the most disillusioning experiences of my life and and the, the kind of conversations that you're having people that you've known for you know 20 years or more um who have you know shared your views and and, and now feel that you know that you're not on the same team and this has been difficult i do want to ask you the question because you said you're not having any fun with this and of course i i find it to be you know awfully uh, painful but when do you decide to engage the trolls and not I noticed over the last 24 hours you had a uh, back and forth with, uh, you know, m- mega troll Sebastian Gorka. And you even posted a hate note that someone wrote you basically celebrating the death of your father-in-law, which, which was about as, as, as loathsome as possible. So when do you decide to engage these, uh, these bottom-dwelling, you know, the, the, the bottom feeders? And when, when do you decide to just ignore them? Yeah, I, I, it's not like I have this complex... Um, mathematical formula on a grease board that I consult about whether yeah. or not to implement, you know, protocol engage troll seven, you know, or anything like that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, I, you know, part of it is, you know, people ask me, why do you get into some arguments with so-and-so, whether it's a troll or it's a left winger or now these days a right winger. And they're like, you know, you'll never persuade him. What's the point? And, and part of the reason why, part of my answer is, I'm not necessarily, I mean, I would like to persuade the person I'm arguing with, but what I'm really trying to do is persuade the, the observer. Yeah. Expose them. And so, uh, there are times when, uh, um, you just, you, you need to sort you know, Edmund Burke says examples, the school of mankind, and he will learn it. No other. And what he means by that is sometimes you have to show people, you can't just tell them. And so sometimes I'm just like, you know, you know, particularly back when the alt right was doing all of its Nazi stuff at me, and um, you know, back then, and was it summer of 2015? Uh, ben Shapiro was the number one victim mm-hmm. of anti-Semitic stuff, and I was like number six. And one of the things that freaked me out about that back then is that it was not—I never, for a moment, thought most, most even forget most. I mean, I never, I never thought even a significant minority of of conserv- rank and file american conservatives and republicans had wanted anything to do with that alt right garbage but what really i found dismaying at the time was the degree to which so many of them just didn't care yeah and just didn't think this was all that bad and maybe you should why are you taking this stuff so seriously and so back then you know i would tweet out some of the stuff I was getting to say, really, this is the stuff. Yeah, this is the real stuff. You're telling me I shouldn't make a big deal about this, or I shouldn't let this go to my skin, like get under my skin. You know, at one point uh, there was a conversation on Twitter about, you know, uh, drugs. And I pointed out, you know, well, look, my brother had addiction problems. My brother died. I kind of, you know, I, I see this a little differently. And instantaneously, all of these, you know, largely Russian, I think, but you know, all these alt-right accounts start these long, you know, threads and jokes about whether my brother was turned into soap or lampshades. And, you know, you want people, you, you want to show people that this right. is the garbage that's you wanna, going you wanna, on. You want to peel that back and say, look, this is what's happening. We have to confront this. We cannot turn the blind eye to this because I had the same reaction that, you know, at, at, at first it was like, I, I just could not imagine that this was, there was this out there. You know, I mean, was this part of our tribe? Were these people that that had once been allies, or or these people who are you know in somebody's basement who've now been encouraged to come out and do this? But they they you need you need to you know shine a light on them, just like you would shine a light on you know a nest of rats that you found in your in in your basement. But uh, yeah, that was that was there's there's two different elements there. It's the the fact that there was so much hate there, and the fact that that people who ought to have been more outraged were apparently willing to kind of, you know, turn that blind eye, look the other way. 
uh, not speak out about it. And I'm afraid that's part of the legacy of this. Hey, Jonah, it has been absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, sometime we'll have to have a, a longer discussion about how long you think podcasts should be, because I, I think you know, <laughs> because I, I, I know that you I know you have addressed this on your podcast, which I also li- listen to, that you have a different philosophy of podcast. But just just just, just I do this every day. I understand. So, but you used to do like a three hour radio show, right? Yeah, but you notice I stopped doing that. <laughs> no, fair enough. But, you know, a, a three hour radio show, when you take out the commercials, is what, about, you know, 52 minutes? <laughs> and, I, I don't know. But I mean, it, it is an interesting question. I mean, I've had people who say, look, you know, I, you know, 20 minutes is just too short. It should be much longer. I, I want more. I find myself wanting more. I get that. And then there are other people who say, no, the length of the podcast should be just long enough to take the dog for a walk. You know, a dog walk is exactly, well, it depends how long you take your dog for a walk. So, I think this 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 debate is something we're going to have to engage in. At yeah, some I think as a general, just as my general proposition, and I had a long talk with Russ Roberts about this, that if the conversation's going well, um, then people are going to listen until it ends. If the conversation is going poorly, they're going to turn it off before you hit twenty minutes anyway. And so my only standard for it is if if I'm enjoying the conversation and I don't have someplace else to be. Um, I want to let it go in part because I think, and I think you would agree with me on this, whether regardless of the debate about the length of these things, um, the, the talk radio and cable news, uh, diet is so unnutritious intellectually. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) That, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why podcasting is becoming such a big thing is because people actually want to hear people think things through, admit when they think, oh, I probably said that wrong or I, I, I don't yeah. know that. And they want to hear actual conversations rather than this, these sort of set piece, you know, carnival stall shouting matches. And, um, and I think you do a fantastic job of it. I mean, I, I think your podcast is great. I mean, I, I, I could send you notes I have on some episodes, but that's a different issue. Um, I would love to see them actually. I really would. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, uh, um, I think last was great yesterday or whenever this uh, last time he was on. I don't know when this is going to air. Um, uh, no, that was that was yesterday. And uh, no, yeah. and, I, and I and I told him I said I said JV, I want you to bring your A game today. I mean, um, I before we even started, I said I, I hope you're full of piss and vinegar because that's what I'm, that's what we're going for today. And, um, and he did. Yeah, I thought it was great. He and, um, hey Jonah, uh, we're out yeah. of time. All right, man. I'll talk to that's you. That's it. That's it. We're done. All right. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you do what you got to do, man. I mean, like for all I know, Steve Hayes just walked in with a big plate of wings, and you got to go. I mean, that's no. I see. Remember, I'm I'm in, I'm in New York. I'm in Thirty Rock. You know, I'm afraid that Katie Turr is going to come back and like look around for you know something she left in her office here, and I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm doing this podcast with Jonah Goldberg. Really, I'm I'm that's happening. But anyway, this book is fantastic. I'm glad it's getting the attention that it's getting. I'm glad that it's getting the sales. Um, that's got to be very very gratifying. Um, so I think this is uh, you've, you've you've written some important things before but i think this one is the is the book that explains the moment and and i and i think that this moment is not going to be uh you know we're, we're not going to be past this when donald trump leaves the leaves the stage and i and i think that this is something that we're going to be wrestling with for the rest of our lifetimes unfortunately uh the, the suicide of the west you absolutely have to have this book uh jonah I, I, enjoy, I, yes i appreciate it greatly and um uh and we should uh we should have brown liquor at some point together um, totally so we can, that. We, we can tell the real stories. So I am anyway. totally in favor of that. Jonah Goldberg, thanks for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll be doing this all over again. Mm-hmm.